And after tonight, we only have two more studies. So uh, y'all stick in, stick with it, and you know, hold in there, and and uh, we'll get through Second Corinthians, and then in the fall, hopefully, it's likely. I got to look at. I got to look at some of the schedule, but it's likely that we we may finish the New Testament in the fall. So um, it's kind of kind of neat to think that that's that's within grasp now. We started this years ago. So um, let's pray, and we will dive right in. Lord, we come to you now, and we're very thankful for our. Uh, time tonight. The opportunity to gather is no small thing. The access that we have to you in Christ is no small thing. The encouragement that we have in the scriptures is no small thing. And so as we particularly consider tonight what the church is supposed to be, who we're supposed to be, how we're to be characterized, and what that has to do with you, uh, we just pray that you would guide our time. I pray for honest, uh, edifying conversation. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jake, will you close those doors for me, buddy? I don't want anyone sneaking up on me. <laughs> yeah, shouldn't there be more of y'all? Yeah, all right. The youth are with us, both of them. Okay, that's good. That's good, guilt, guilt text. Yeah. So last week we started 1 Corinthians, and as I mentioned in my prayer, the, the focus in Corinthians, the, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, is this is what, what should be the characteristics of the church. This is not just how we should look, but who we should be. And I, wanna, I wanted to draw that distinction. I didn't really talk about it last week, but sometimes when we talk about church and faith, we can talk in terms of how it should look. But that's absolutely not what Paul's talking about in his letter to Corinth. How it should look indicates we're just looking for the right things to do and appearances and things like that. But he's talking about far beyond how it should look to, in fact, what it is, what the essence is of how we move with one another in light of Christ. So to recap, a few questions to dive back in. What is the difference between thinking like a consumer and thinking like a worshiper? What's the difference between thinking like a consumer and thinking like a worshiper? Because he was addressing this with the uh, church in Corinth. Yeah, what can I get out of it? That's how the consumer thinks. And how is that different from the worshiper? Yeah, the worshiper is more what can I give to you? What else? Consumer versus worshiper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for the glory of God. The worshiper, the church, like when you think about church, like what's the point of the church? If the first thing you think about is, well, it helps me as a parent, it helps me as this, it helps me as that, we've missed the point because the point of church is God. What we exist for is for His glory. When I say glory or to glorify God, what in the world does that mean? Christians are great about slinging that word around. For His glory, let's glorify God today. What are we doing when we do that? We're boasting in his name, not in our own, absolutely. What else goes with glorifying God? Yep, acknowledging his sovereignty, which means this thing that he is here exists because of him and he has a purpose in it. Yep, making much of God. Everything you do, he is the revelation of the way you 
Yeah. He is our motivation for all things in life. That, that is what it means to glorify God. Think of glorifying God as, um, there's a difference between giving and ascribing. Like if I said, I'm going to give you lots of glory, you know, that, that, that's, in a sense, that can be like ascribing, but it, 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 it's not something you're assigning when we glorify God. We are ascribing to God. We are saying, all of this is because of you. All of the glory that exists is your glory. All of the goodness, all of the, the truth, all of the um, things that are right exist because of you. So we're saying, in all that we are, and all that we do, there is truth, and we want to move in that truth, and all that truth exists because you are God, and you alone are sovereign. You are truth. And so when we're talking about consumer versus worshiper, the worshiper is interested in what's in it for me. Remember I shared the example last week of I like driving in the rain? That ridiculous little example of like it just shows how often we can think of I was driving home and it was raining and my first thought was I like driving in the rain. And so the point was it just shows sort of the consumer mentality of Driving in the rain has nothing to do with if you like it or not. Like, it's raining, you have to drive, period. But because I'm consumer-minded, my first thought was, I like this. And then I thought, I bet, I bet other people don't like this. In fact, I bet there's a number of people who don't like driving in the rain, but I like driving in the rain, and that, uh, it's appealing to me, and whatever else. So it just shows this, if we go to church to worship, the, the gathering of God's people, and if at the end of every service, it's, well, I liked this, and I didn't like this, and I liked this, and I didn't like this. That shows you, you showed up as a consumer, and you participated as a consumer. But a worshiper is far more focused on what is going on for God and His glory. And I still like driving in the rain. How did Paul's experience with the church in Corinth differ from his experience with the church in Rome? Important little bit of background as we're studying his letter to the church in Corinth. Yeah, the church in Corinth was a real mess. Yep, there was more opposition there. What else? Yes, there were. Yep, they were accepting and tolerating sin. Yeah. Exactly. So this was, uh, you know, it's one of those, it's your mess kind of a situation. So Paul had never been to the church in Rome. He was eager to go and preach to them because of the gospel, power of God, and the salvation for all who believe. But with Corinth, it's totally different. He started the church in Corinth. He knew the people of Corinth. He was um, intimately involved and insight, had a lot of insight into uh, the challenges that they were facing, the attitudes of the people, the heart behind it. And you can tell in his words, you know, if he wrote these words to people he didn't know, um, it would be a little bit weird because he, he's clearly presuming insight into their lives, into their motives even. And so uh, he, he has started the church in Corinth. He's, at, at one point, we, we learned that he visited there and stayed there to build up the church for a year and a half. So he had at least you know, 18 months of a run at the actual church in Corinth. Uh, so it's very different from the church in Rome where he had had never met them, didn't establish it, and, and, and it was very different. So um, he was very familiar with the church in Corinth. So last week we named three things that, that the church should be characterized by. So what are those three things? How should the church be characterized? Set apart. Set apart. Holy. 
pure. That goes under the holy category. So there's still two more. There's the strange to the world, special to God, and pure. Those were all the holy parts. Unity. And what was the third one? That's good, because we didn't get to that last week. So, what does it mean to be holy? Strange to the world, special to God, and pure. Uh, what is often the precursor to division in the church, if we're to be unified? What's often the precursor to division? Yeah, acceptance and tolerance of sin. So that's something we read in this letter, that the church is to be holy. So they're, they're to care about purity and beauty and, and doing what is right and being obedient to God's word. But when they begin tolerating sin, particular sin that was addressed in chapter uh, 5 was a guy sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul is very angry about this, but what you notice as you're reading through that chapter is he's not yelling at that guy. He, he's dealing with the church and how the church didn't put that guy out of fellowship. The church did not address the sin. They were tolerating it. And in fact, not only were they tolerating the sin and accepting it, but they were sort of proud in the fact that they were so tolerant, like as if somehow their tolerance was more unifying. Sort of the idea that, well, I don't really want to talk to him about it because I don't want to mess up what we got going. I don't want to mess up our relationship. And that's actually a very unbiblical thought, according to what Paul says here, because what he tells us is that when you tolerate sin, that's what leads to division in the church. So we're called to be holy. Part of the call to be holy is because we're also called to be united. The church is to be united. So that's picking up where we left off. In general, if we are self-concerned people, we embody the nature of the culture around us and have already been defeated. If we are self-concerned people, remember last week we talked about if this is there's like a 45-degree mirror, we can either be a reflection of um, God to the culture or a reflection of the culture back to God, but there's really no in-between. It's one or the other. And so if we're a self-concerned, self-involved people, we are embodying the nature of our culture. Remember we talked a lot last week about advertisements and all the the cultural deals that come through in our advertisements and the, the, the two main principles of our culture are self and now. Have it your way. Like, now. Your way. Now. Um, give me a break. Calgon, take me away. We had some other really good ones last week. Um, but the, the point was, it was you and it was now. And it was just this total involvement with self. And so uh, I read a Tim Keller quote that said, there's nothing that makes you more miserable or less interesting than self-absorption. And it's a good quote to read because if you read the scope of 1 Corinthians, if you go through the whole thing, Paul would definitely agree with that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. In, in regards to being united, um, we, like many things in the church in Corinth, we, we understand what's right by addressing what they're doing wrong. Um, and when we read about what they're doing wrong, I'll just confess, when I read this, I mean, some of it is like, man, these guys are idiots. What a bunch of morons. I mean, how do, how do you plant a church and end up with this? But that's pride talking, because if we really address this, we come in low and we address it the right way in a humble way, we should be able to um, 
see how quickly any of us could fall into this place if we stop holding each other accountable, if we stop pursuing holiness, and we find that we are in fact divided. So imagine a church, the setting now as I read this is they're tolerating sin, they're not dealing with it as they should, so they're having issues of division because they're not... um, they're not preserving the gift that they have in Christ. And then this happens in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So what Paul is indicating right there is that when the church gathers, it's not only believers that gather. Sometimes it's people who say they're believers and they're not. And so what he's saying there is that when the church gathers, there have to be differences among you, even divisions or factions among you, so that you can tell who's, who's genuine, who is of God, who is a follower of Christ. And he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So that indicates there's got to be something more than action. It's not like you're taking the supper, but it ain't the supper, is what he's saying. For in, it, in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So the issue is, they're coming together for the supper. Imagine just for a moment, if we have actual bread and actual wine, and what's happening is there are divisions, and so those with maybe more power or more sway, uh, or you know, whatever, a higher, they're high, more highly esteemed, they're getting drunk on the wine, while other people aren't getting any. Just picture a Sunday morning. Where we've had the sermon... We distribute the elements. There's five guys over here, lit up, talking more loudly than they should, because that's what you do when you drink too much. And then there's people over here going hungry. And then there's some selfish guy over here with the whole basket. You know, I mean, really picture that, because it's a picture of how backwards things are, how ugly things have gotten in the church in Corinth. He says, For I received... From the Lord, what I also delivered to you. So he's saying, I taught you the supper. I got this from God and I brought it to you. I taught you the supper. And what you're doing is nothing like what I taught. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which for you do this in remembrance of me. So what Paul does is he says, What you're doing is not the supper. And then he goes in to give a reminder of, This is what the supper is. The supper is the feast of their unity. Like that's something that we're celebrating in the supper, that we have unity. That because of the broken body of Christ and the spilt blood of Christ, we are unified. And even in the feast that celebrates that, they were divided. Dever has a note, he says, when churches divide for carnal reasons, they identify themselves with something other than Christ. Do you believe that? When churches divide, split, for carnal reasons, they identify with something other than Christ. They become the church of modern music, or the church of this pastor or that pastor, or the church of the homeschoolers, 
or the church of the Democrats, or the church of the Republicans, or the white people, or adoption church, or the social justice church. He goes on to say, true Christian unity reflects the unity of Christ by unity with each other. We're not supposed to be known by how divided we are, how argumentative we are, how angry we are with one another and then with people who want to talk to us about it. We're supposed to be united. Yes. When churches divide for carnal reasons, they identify themselves with something other than Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever met anybody who didn't want to come to church because of all the hypocrites? Just call them a hypocrite and invite them on Sunday. So we're, we all have, we're all flawed. Um, what are some carnal reasons the churches divide? I mean, we're talking in abstract terms. Let's get concrete about our, our culture. What are some reasons that you know of that churches have divided? And do not say the name of the church. Money. Money. Music. What else? Theology. Theology. (laughs) Which I should say here that there is room, like there there are times when it's okay to find a new church home. And generally when it comes to theology, where there are non-negotiables that are being treated as negotiable, that's a time where maybe it's wise to find a new church home. However, Paul addresses emphatically in 1 Corinthians, uh, there are things that are negotiable. And when you act like absolutely nothing is negotiable, you're unloving people. And that brings us to this next thing, that the church is to be loving. So we're to be holy, we're to be united, and we're to be loving. And this is a huge theme. It's interesting. There is so much sin in the church in Corinth. They're the kind of people that get drunk at the supper and exclude others. That's the kind of people they are. They're the kind of people that tolerate a young man sleeping with his stepmom. They're the kind of people that get into fist fights at corporate worship. They're the kind of people that take each other to court. And it's interesting because one of the biggest themes in this letter is love. It's clear that they're not moving in love. And what Paul says, I find to be very, very challenging because, well... Let's just dig into it and see if y'all think it's as challenging as I do. Look at chapter 8. In chapter 8, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Huge problem with, with the early church is you have Jews and Gentiles. And so you have some that don't eat meat because it was sacrificed to an idol. Then you have others that are like, I don't care if it was sacrificed to an idol. I don't even believe in that idol. Give me the meat. That's probably the category I would fall into. Just give it to me. I want the steak. I don't care who sacrificed it to whoever. I don't even believe in that stuff. Others' consciences were, were, were really, um, uh, they were plagued. They, they, they found it as a problem. And so there's this food that's offered to idols. Do we eat it? Do we not? Um, there's people who say, you know what, it's, it's, the food's not evil. And then there's other people that say, I can't eat that. So that's what's going on. All of us possess knowledge. Everybody knows something, Right? Well, this is what I think about that food and that idol. This is what I think. He said, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, that's not a statement against knowledge. It's a statement against how they're using the knowledge. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, lowercase g, lowercase l, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Look at how low Paul comes in here. It's obvious The idols aren't real. The gods aren't real. Who cares about what was sacrificed to them? But Paul says, not everyone understands this. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. He's talking about new believers. He's having lots of patience here with new believers who have a lot of baggage from their previous experiences. It's interesting, because as I'm reading that first part, I get to verse, through verse 6, where he's like, there are, you know, yet for us, there's one God. You know? And I'm thinking, yeah, Paul, guys, come on, there's just one God. But he goes on. That's not his main point. He goes on to say, he says, but something former association um, with idols, eat food is really being offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours, you have the right to do what you want. You have the right to make your own decision. But take care that the right that you have does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, this is not Paul's call to the vegetarian lifestyle. I would imagine Paul went on to eat meat. However, he's saying here, he's making this point like, don't do anything that makes your brother stumble. He's talking about genuine love, sacrificing love. I mean, he's getting to the point of saying, there are things you can do, but if you know that there are weaker brothers and sisters whose consciences are seared by that thing you're doing, and it leads them to do it, but they do it with a seared conscience, with a conscience that's not right, with a conscience that still feels like it's wrong, and they're doing what they still feel inside is wrong because you outwardly are saying that it's right, that's actually not okay. That's actually very unloving, and you're causing them to stumble. And he, and he, he, he reiterates it by saying, Christ died for them. So, what does Paul teach about love in these verses? First, he says, love should determine our use of various freedoms. Love should determine our use of various freedoms. Now, at the sake and at the possibility of opening up a huge can of worms, how might this apply in our context? That love should determine our use of various freedoms. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so whatever you're doing, are you doing it for love or some other reason? Which is a great question because Paul actually gets even more emphatic about don't do anything that's self-serving. Like, like not just remember other people while you're being self-serving or let's call it 50-50. He says do, do nothing in a self-serving way. So this whole question, this thing, love should determine our use of various freedoms. What are some freedoms that we have that we must be careful about so that we don't make our brother stumble? Yeah, yeah. Is this an anti-drinking passage? No. What is it? Anti. Making a brother stumble. And how might one make a brother stumble with alcohol? Drinking it in front of them? Or offering it to them? If they know, if you know that that's a problem for them? Like, what I'm getting at is like, okay, let's just go with the alcohol thing because it, I think it's pretty obvious in our culture. There's some who don't drink, there's some who do drink. Um, I would never say that the Bible says it is a sin to drink alcohol. I would say that the Bible says drunkenness is a sin. So moderation, in fact, can glorify God by that standard. However, if someone says, oh no, I, uh, I'm not going to drink, I, it just feels wrong. You don't help them by giving them a drink and telling them it's okay. You would help them by refraining at that moment and having a talk and sacrificing your drink. Such a huge sacrifice. Take up your cross and bear it, right? By sacrificing yours and saying, you know what? Let, let's, let's talk about that. Because you could say, well, that's fine. Cool. Well, I, I'm going to. Well, at what point are you being unloving? To me, this is very challenging. Because... There are some who stand pretty firmly on um, the wisest thing to do is to never have a drink because you never know who the weaker brother is around you. Scott, it's worth considering. Yeah, that's the basis for this, yeah, so for this argument. Yeah. 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 If you feel like it's sin and you go ahead and do it, for you it's a sin. As well, the other side of the argument from Scripture is that if you know the right thing to do and you fail to do the right thing, it is a sin. So doing the thing that you don't, you're not sure about or you feel wrong about is sin, but not doing the thing that you feel right about is sin. So again, I think this is sort of where we come to that reality of the way is narrow, because if you have something you're supposed to do that you don't do, that's sin. And then if you have something that you do that you felt like you weren't supposed to, that too is sin for that person. And so there are different beliefs within the same faith. And because there are different beliefs within the same faith, there are things that are negotiable. What Paul is pointing to here is he's saying, yes, there's things that are negotiable. And you have lots of liberty, but don't ever use it as a means to make someone stumble. With every liberty that you have, you have to take into account, are they... Where I am? Are they in the same place? Are they troubled by this? Now, you're also not responsible to know absolutely everything about everyone's conscience in every setting. So I don't want to take this too far. However, I do think this is probably one of the stronger verses for the argument of at least being very, very careful in your setting, whatever it might be. And alcohol is not the only thing. There are other things um, that, that 
we could talk about. I mean, some people are raised in different ways. Some people are raised to think certain things are evil. And if they're raised in that way, and you say, that's not evil. Like, okay, I'll just take an example like TV watching. There are people who never watch TV. Well, TV's evil. Okay, well, you're in our house. You, we're going to watch a show. You want to join us? I was raised to believe that TV was evil. In that moment, I should consider my brother or sister and say, well, clearly it's not sin or illegal or anything else for me to watch TV. Um, however, in this moment, it would be better to leave it off because, you, I mean, if that person has that baggage, and has, we're talking about baggage here. I mean, we can call it what it is. If someone has that baggage, you don't just say, your baggage is stupid and I have liberty. <laughs> you, had, you essentially have to make a sacrifice in that moment and move in greater wisdom lest you show yourself to be the weaker brother or sister rather than the stronger one you might be assuming you are. So, Yeah, that's a great way to put it if you think about it as an equation, you know, it's if you have the chance to sacrifice liberty or sacrifice unity, um, sacrifice liberty every single time. That's the kind of love he's talking about here. He goes, yep, yep, yeah. Yeah. And we realize that Yeah, I mean that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's. Are you, are you raising your hand, Greg? Or you just hold? Uh, yeah. Sorry, you had your phone. I was like, are you showing me something? Because I can't see it from here. <laughs> It's obvious. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I, I I think there's a great point there that the we could you could over scrutinize anything. I mean, at that point, if you over apply it, you could get to a point where any day of the week, anybody's someone's mad at you and you are failing miserably. And so it's a good point to consider the setting here because the the central purpose of what he's talking about here is the the means by which we're we're looking at other people. And so those who were guilty, they were going to the temple, they were eating. And kind of what, what was just said is that um, even you know, when you're trying to be light with someone, what Paul's describing here is an uber-attentiveness to other people. I mean, a real selfless thing. Like, you can't, you can't live up to this and just be most worried about what you want every day is kind of the point we're getting at here. And so setting is important. Um, what we're seeing about love here, I mean, look at 9-9. We'll, we'll keep going through this, 9.9. 9. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses, you, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out its grain. Um, is it for oxen that God is concerned? And then in 14, he says, um, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So what, what's love in these verses? What's loving in those verses? Nine 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 fourteen. What's it loving to proclaim? It's loving to proclaim the gospel, and it's loving to to seek good for those who proclaim it. And then look at ten twenty three. In 1023, it says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So what is love in those verses? Loving others? Yeah, put others before yourself. Just because it's lawful doesn't mean it's the, the best thing for you to do. If something's lawful, it doesn't necessarily mean it's helpful. So my standard isn't, is this ethically or legally right? My standard is, is this helpful? And not just helpful for me, is this helpful for other people? The otherness of Paul's perspective throughout this entire letter is pretty huge. Um, Dever says, whatever builds up the whole church is far better than what merely builds up the individual. Whatever builds up the whole church is far better than what merely builds up the individual. And what we need to notice in this verse, and I mentioned it earlier, is it's not just a suggestion to also seek the good of others, but to only seek the good of others. I mean, the otherness focus in this letter is, I mean, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So it's not a suggestion just to also seek the good of others, but to only seek the good of others. So what are some ways that the church is called to do this? Seek the good of others. Yeah. 
I'm going to be honest. This was one of those give me questions that I thought was just going to like produce like 15 answers real fast. Yep. Love those that are hard to love, which might be everybody, depending on your... Yeah. Serving? Yeah. So seek, like seek the good of your neighbor. What, what's that look like? Yeah. Yeah. So, so part of the seeking is forming relationships where there's actual communication and, and knowledge of one another. What else? Yep, genuine concern for others' well-being. What that, what might that look like? Yeah. Yeah, looking for practical needs and meeting those practical needs. What else? Yeah, for rough. Yeah, yeah. What else? Yeah, praying for one another. There are all kinds of ways for us to do this. And, you know, as we're talking about love, we, we certainly can't leave out the, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. So go ahead and turn there. Cannot talk about the church being loving without going to this famous chapter that is used at 99% of weddings. Whether that, well, never mind. 99% of weddings. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clangy, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Real quick, what in the world did they just proclaim? What did Paul just proclaim about love in this verse, in these verses? Utterly important. Yeah, without love, obedience means squat, nothing, zip, zilch, nada. I mean, what is being... If you speak in tongues have prophetic powers, understand all mystery, understand all knowledge, and have all faith so as to move, mount, remove, remove mountains. Not just move it, you're removing it. That's even bigger. Give away all you have and deliver your body to be burned. If you met someone who met those qualifications, you'd probably be like, dang. Wow. I mean, they would look like the most Loving, you have all knowledge, all insight, faith to remove mountains. You would give up your own life, your, to your body to be burned. You give away all that you have. That person sounds amazing. But Paul's making the point, looking amazing is one thing. Because if you have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. So he's aiming to gain something in love. A love aims to gain something. Let's go on. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect, when the perfect comes, the partial will, be, will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I give up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Dever has a note on this that he says, um, these verses take on special power when you insert them back into the context in which God placed them. It's really important. So let's take them out of every wedding you've been to, whether it's a Christian wedding or a pagan wedding or a wedding at the park or a wedding of people you love, whatever it was, take it out of that context because I feel like that's where this chapter resides. It like resides in the wedding context, whether the wedding has had anything to do with Christ leading up to it, during it, or after it. It resides in a way. So he's saying take it out and put it back in the context of the church. It has special power as the dynamic fuel of the church. Evangelicals are fairly good about expressing that love is more than a feeling, right? Like, you've heard that probably from our our pulpit. Um, It gets uncomfortable, so I like to quote people who say it. So Ravi Zacharias wrote a book called I, Isaac, Take Thee, Rebecca. And the whole point of the book was, if you will to love someone, you can. Very romantic. It's very Valentine's Cardish. If you will to love someone, you can. Um, I don't feel love for you, but I will force myself to love you. Um, and, but he, he's, he's getting to the point that really biblical love is, is, is more than a feeling. It, it's an act. And yeah, sometimes it's acting directly against your feelings. So I think evangelicals are pretty good about expressing that love is more than a feeling. It's, it's about what you actually do. It's, it's tangible. But Paul is actually taking it further here. Paul indicates that love is, yes, it's more than a feeling, but it's, it's more, and everyone has that song in their head right now, right? Everyone, more than a feeling. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, it is about what you do, but Paul indicates that love is, is more than what you do. It involves the disposition of the heart toward others and God. So when he's talking about love here, He's talking about the disposition of one's heart toward others and towards God. And so it indicates that, well, you could give away everything you have. You could deliver your body to be burned. You could be really stinking brilliant and be able to just tell people things that blow their mind all the time. But if, if, your disposi- if the disposition of your heart toward them and toward God is not one of love, he in fact says you gain nothing. Consider, if love is not self-seeking, Christians should not be preoccupied with their own limited private good. Christians should not be preoccupied with their own limited private good. How might we know if this was something we were occupied with? Our own limited private good. Where's your time go? Yeah. Where's your money go? 
Yeah. If, if you say something's a priority, that doesn't make it a priority. You have to look at your schedule and your bank account because your time and your money will indicate what your actual priorities are. I love people. I love people more than anything. But if all of your money went toward garbage that you bought for yourself that you're not even going to care about in 30 days and, and your, your time was spent on just the stuff you like, the stuff you prefer, your hobbies, things you enjoy, and if that doesn't involve other people, um, that, that would show that you're maybe preoccupied with your own limited private good. But Christians, according to what Paul is saying here, are not to be preoccupied with our own limited private good. You know, one of the most glaring examples of this, and this is something that I've, I've just personally struggled with, I'll be honest, because I'm very, um, I'm kind of wired to think in terms of um, security and safety. I've been installing security systems since I was 14 years old. So I've been into many places where people, they, they've been violated. Their house has been broken into. Old people have been taken advantage of. Single moms have been scared by someone. And I just grew up seeing that stuff. You know, uh, dad carries a gun. That's normal. You know, there's all these things. And so I'm kind of wired for security and for safety. And I heard something this week um, that talked about... Um, he said, because self is no longer our God, safety and security is no longer our concern. And that kind of spiritual kick in the gut. Because self is no longer our God, safety and security are no longer our concern. And what he was talking about in the, the setting of that statement was the global refugee crisis. Currently, there are 60 million refugees 60 million people displaced from their home and country. 60 million people, of which there would be more, but so many were murdered in the process of the displacement. There's 60 million. And those 60 million are made up of people who saw their relatives murdered, who saw family members die in a bombing, and they, they look around, they're the only ones left. And they're set up at camps. They're making a journey away from their homeland where they're generally taken advantage of at every turn. People will set up camps and charge money. People will give them a ride and charge money. People will take advantage of the plight of those who have been displaced. 60 million refugees in the world. And somehow, Americans in general seem to somehow take the plight of 60 million people and make it about us. Like, how do we feel about you know, someone coming here? Well, I don't want to make light of a, a very heated topic and what could be a very political topic, but when you take something so basic to caring for those who are in need and turn it into the whole political punditry thing, it's gross. Christians are not to be preoccupied with our limited private good. So that doesn't mean we flippantly give disregard to safety. That's not what I'm suggesting here. But I am suggesting that when things like that come up, when you have opportunity to make a sacrifice for the well-being of someone else, whether you trust them or not, I think the Christian should be inclined to move, to show some love, to, to, to not look out for my own good, but to look to the interests of others. And that's a challenge to me because I look at that and I, I had no concerns. I was pretty footloose and fancy free before I had kids. And now that I have kids, I'm like, nope, nope. <laughs> Oh, we could go there? How about no? Because I have kids. It's, it's, it's changed its perspective, but I'm challenged in that perspective by this text. I'm challenged in the perspective as I look at this because the way to understand chapter 13 is by reading chapter 14. 
the application of chapter 13 is chapter 14. In fact, some would say the love chapter is actually chapter 14 because it shows how to apply all these things. If you want to work out the implications of 13 in your life and in the life of the church, you read 14. To be very brief, I'm not going to read it, but Paul judges the worth of something by whether it edifies others. He encourages the Corinthians to excel in gifts that build up the church. Another expression of concern is given in chapter 14 for edifying others. He measures the gifts by whether they edify others. He says everything in the church must be done for the strengthening of the church. And he says prophecy should be devoted to the instruction and encouragement of everyone. So when we see that application of this, this love that's talked about in 13, here's some questions that I want you to take with you for reflection. When was the last time you attended church with the edification of others, the primary concern of your heart? The last time you showed up to corporate worship with the edification of other people being the primary concern of your heart, do you seek out your close friends after the service or do you look around for visitors and unfamiliar faces? Do you pray before and during the service that God would particularly use the time you have together on Sunday as a church family to work in the hearts of both you and others? Do you ever feel the urge to invite other people to worship? Do you ever feel the urge to go and share the gospel with other people? Do you ever feel the urge to just simply go help someone who needs the help, whether you know them, whether you like them or not? The early church in chapter 16 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you're to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as, as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem if it seems advisable that I should go also and they will accompany me. What we see here is that even in the early church, even to a church that's divided even within itself, there's an encouragement to reach out in concern for other local churches. So this isn't just about an inward focus of your own local church. We believe that the local church, a strong, healthy local church, is the long arm of evangelism. People are supposed to look at us and see something about God. But we're also supposed to reach out to other local churches and look out for their good. The reason for all of this, and this is the thing we'll close with, why should holiness, unity, and love characterize the church? Because the character of the church reflects the character of God. God is holy. That was our first thing. We're holy because he is holy. Our holiness as Christians is God's holiness in Christ imparted to us and imputed to us, both. Dever says God has prepared the church for holiness. The second thing is that God is one. So we're to be unified because he's perfectly unified as he is one. Our oneness is Christ's oneness. In light of that, Paul addresses the problem with their division. The only way that... Hey, look at 113. This is the last place I'll have you turn. In 113, he says, uh, he's asking these questions. You know, there's divisions, and someone says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he says, Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? The only way that that question makes any sense is if Paul regards the church as the body of Christ. That question makes no sense unless Paul regards the church as the body of Christ. Remember Paul's Damascus Road experience. Saul, why are you persecuting me? The indicator there 
the very thing that, that, that was his, his moment of, of transformation, his moment of justification, his moment of being brought from darkness to light, was that persecuting the church was tantamount to persecuting Christ. That's how Paul began his journey of faith. The realization that persecuting the church is tantamount to persecuting Christ. So God is holy, God is one, and then God is loving. To sin against others is to sin against Christ. That's what Paul draws out in this book. Treating you unlovingly is treating Christ unlovingly. Christ so identifies himself with his church that he describes such failures to love as failures toward him. 1 Corinthians 1.31 is... Uh, no, that's not right. The last verse, and I got it wrong. Hold on. Nope, that's not right either. So there's a verse in 1 Corinthians. And it says, uh, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Whatever you do. That's a great way to sum up this letter. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Because if it's genuinely to the glory of God, it will be for the love of others in, in a right way as we are holy, unified, and loving. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and we are thankful um, for your word. Um, Lord, I'm challenged uh, this week just... I confess in front of everybody that I have a real tendency towards what I want, and I have a tendency towards being selfish, and I put a high priority on safety and security, and um, Lord, I, my prayer is that none of us would be limited in our usefulness to you by these preconceived, these feelings and these presuppositions we have in our, in our worldviews. Lord, this whole place exists for your glory. I pray that in light of the love that we're called to and this, this movement of holiness in a unified manner, in a loving manner, that we would be people who are ready to be used by you as vessels, as you see fit, poured out how you see fit, when you see fit, where you see fit. Lord, help us to be available to you in light of these things, in love towards others and in love towards you. Lord, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1031. I left a zero out and it made all the difference. <laughs>